Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today we are continuing the best film series with my colleague, Andrew Stamper. Today we'll be tackling my number one film of all time, The Thin Red Line by Terrence Malick. But first of all, Andrew, uh, it's great to see you on the show again. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, it's been a little while. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We are back, ready to tackle a pretty pretty in-depth, long, yeah, yeah, very meandering sort of film. So I'm been looking forward to this conversation for the last couple of days as I've been kind of doing some research and doing a couple of rewatches. Cool. Yeah. But I will, I guess we'll start out with a uh, little synopsis. I'll take care of that on this one for you. So um, the film centers around the, the army retaking the, or taking the island of Guadalcanal set in World War II. Um, so we start out or taking essentially the beach head and then they progress until they reach this sort of ridge where a lot of the film's um, sort of, I guess, first half is focused on taking out some Japanese positions. And then we wind up, um, I guess, there's not really a lot to synopsize, I guess, really, to be honest, um, since this is more of a poem, I think, than a, than a film. But essentially, yeah. we sort of follow a number of different sort of enlisted men and their uh, adventures and their, um, you know, the pain and suffering and existential crisis that, that they encounter as they uh, as they conduct this campaign on Guadalcanal. I think that's sort of the best uh, synopsis that I can give. I don't know if there's any anything that you want to add for clarification. No, I, I think you pretty much nailed it. Is just the, um, you know, we're kind of following these army soldiers and I guess like Charlie Company and their their taking of Guadalcanal and the movie is just kind of that. That's like the setting really for the yeah. film. It's not really the focus. I think, Yeah, so. exactly. Um, Cause I mean, yeah, the, the movie is about these people. It's not really about the war. So right. it's their, I really don't even want to say adventure, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. but That's they're definitely a euphemism. Yeah. Their, their, their journey or their struggle right. um, during this campaign. And I think definitely the the plot is certainly secondarily, especially in the in the context of this film, more so than than most. Yeah, I would say absolutely. But I want to start out, I guess, with a little bit of background on Terrence Malick, just to acquaint the listeners and so forth, if they're not that familiar with him. Uh, but um, he was a filmmaker that gained a lot of notoriety in the '70s with a couple of films, Badlands and um, Days of Heaven. So let's see. Badlands was almost sort of like a 70s-era natural-born killer-style film with Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. And then Badlands, I think, was... I don't remember what the plot was, but I know that Richard Gere, I believe, was the lead, if I'm not mistaken. Entirely possible. I I didn't see that one. Yeah. Yeah. I tried watching both, but I just couldn't couldn't get into them at all. It's too Terrence Malick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so after those films, he was, I think, actually, Days of Heaven must have come out in like 78 or something. Yeah, because uh, the first one was like 73-ish, and then Days of Heaven was uh, was 78, and then Thin Red Line, 20 yeah, Thin years Red later. Line, um, all those years later. So he was kind of a legend, and then all of a sudden kind of popped, well, I think he had been working on some things since probably the late 80s, and some of the reading that I had done. But this was the first thing to really materialize for him. And he was sort of a legend in that a ton of actors came out 
and auditioned for roles for the Thin Red Line, and uh, I mean tons and tons. And it, of course, some of them actually were cast, and then some of them were actually notoriously um, there had their roles either diminished significantly or entirely. Yeah, Mickey Rourke, right? Cut out of the film. Yeah, yeah like Rourke, and I think there's like Bill Bob Thornton. I mean, we'll, I, we'll probably yeah. talk about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But uh, so this, he was sort of a recluse and came pop back on the scene with this film. And uh, just to give people a little bit more context, he, so he was a Harvard grad. He got, I think he got his undergraduate degree in philosophy and had, was like a Rhodes Scholar, Phi Beta Kappa, had done a translation or has a published translation of one of the German philosopher Martin Heidegger's works and... For those of you who don't know much about philosophy, Heidegger is one of the most difficult to read. I think they say there's a joke about him it being notoriously difficult to tr- translate his work into German, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty clever and funny. Um, and I wonder how much, I'm kind of curious too, I wish I had read a little bit more on Heidegger to see how much of that philosophy strain of his sort of... Um, surfaces within the film yeah but uh there's definitely a lot of philosophy going on here that we'll we'll delve into um but uh, yeah i think that's that's pretty cool oh with that all have, yeah i mean know, on your resume yeah. obviously the guy is super intelligent and then i think he even did an mfa at the uh, afi conservatory as well later down the road yeah i mean terrence malick is brilliant um in many ways and yeah obviously film track record and then his not the things that he's done apart from making films he's quite a mind and then uh yeah wanted to i guess we can talk about this now is uh so adrian brody originally thought he was going to be the lead in the film and right yeah i think when they started doing press junkets for the film is when or maybe one of the early premieres he realized that (laughs) he was no longer essentially the lead in the movie. Right, because it's based on a book, right? And, yeah. And I guess Fife is more of the, the, the protagonist in the, in the book? I think the book is, by, is the same title. It's by um, James Jones. Okay. And I've never read the book. I didn't spend a lot of time right. researching the actual book itself, but yeah. you're, you're probably right there. But I, I do know that, yeah, Adrian Brody plays, uh, is it uh, Private Fife? Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it, he thought it, uh, that he was the star of the film until I guess the movie was done being finished or, you know, completely finished and started being, yeah, like shown. And he went from being the lead to having like what, maybe like five lines of dialogue. Yeah. Hardly any dialogue throughout the entire film. He's in it. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Decent, you know, amount of scenes, but he doesn't have a lot of actual dialogues. Yep. He, uh. And the scenes that he's on, he's not bad, but I mean, he's not by yeah. any means carrying the scene that he's in, right. even though his acting is still really, really strong. And uh, especially like uh, when he and Jim Caviezel and, um, oh shoot, I forget. I can't place that actor either, but uh, I know I've seen him before. He looks super familiar. Yeah. Um, when they were, when they were told to go check, the, uh, check out the, uh, the line, it's just crazy to be, uh, <laughs> that, yeah, I mean. Uh, think because I mean this was before the the pianist and you know some of the other things that you know Adrian Brody has gone on to do before I think before this there was no actually I, I, the movie I was thinking of Summer of Sam was after this so 
I don't, I, I want, I mean, this might've been just one of his like early like opportunities thinking that this was going to be the movie that's going to make him. Right. And you imagine. Yeah. He's like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm in this Terrence Malick film and I'm the star. I'm the lead. I'm, I'm carrying (laughs) a movie that has, you know, Nick Nolte and, uh, John Travolta and all these other George Clooney, George Clooney, all these other huge names. And then it's like, all right, guys, you got to see this film. And then it's like, where the fuck am I? Um, but also, so Mickey Rourke, which we mentioned, was cut. Bill Pullman, Nicholas Haas. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. As you mentioned, Billy Bob Thornton had recorded a sort of a vo- voiceover for the entire film that ended up not getting used as well, which I'd, I'm kind of interested to hear. Yeah. I wonder if it's the same dialogue. Like, I'm wondering what the context is of that. Mm-hmm. Because that'd be certainly interesting to... Oh, I'd love to hear it. Right? Yeah. And then I had shared with with you this. So Christopher Plummer, I think there was there. So there's a roundtable video you can find on YouTube. I'll put this in the show notes. But uh, Plummer's telling the story because he was in the Malik's next film, which was The New World, and uh, he was notoriously, I guess, cut out from a lot of the, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or a lot of his scenes were cut as well or diminished or and in none some too way. pleased about it. Yeah, he was not very happy with Mr. Malik, as he said. He's like, oh yeah, you know, Terry does great work, but, you know, he'll be focusing on a butterfly or <laughs> a bird somewhere. And I'm off, like, working on this, this really dramatic scene, so <laughs> I thought that's pretty amusing. <laughs> I love that video. It, it, it's, and he's not too, you know, Right. wrong yeah you know and in, in what he's saying either it's funny too because Clooney is also in that little round table yep. and Clooney was in the film but he had a lot of majority of his scenes were cut too mm-hmm. he's only in one scene at the he, very end of yeah the movie. he just has we're kind of like talking about the family thing and even his lines are completely irrelevant as you know like it's really yeah. more focused on Sean Penn uh in that in that scene so it's like oh yeah which, I mean, it, it makes the movie, the movie is really interesting in many ways, but where these huge names were either A, cut out, or roles seriously diminished, but the the people that you're really tracking is, you know, a, a then unknown, like Jim Caviezel and, um, oh shoot, uh, the redhead, um, damn it. Wait, you're you're throwing me off when you say redhead. The guy with the uh, the, the guy with the red hair. Um, he. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Dash Mihawk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. Yep. Um, where I mean, they were really the the actors that had, and then you had what Ben Chaplin, right? I mean, Ben so, Chaplin, John so the, C. Riley in there. Yeah, um, and he was he he he's in the film. I, I think he gets one bit of dialogue. You see him a couple times, but I think he only gets like one line or two yeah. lines. I'm trying to, there's, oh, uh, Elias Codius. Oh, I love him. Uh, oh, he was so good in yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. But of, uh, I mean, I'll never forget him as Casey Jones. Good, I was glad you're original. Go with, I'm glad you're going with that, yeah. The teenage. original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Casey yeah. Jones. He also plays like a punk, um, kind of like skinhead dude in this 1980s movie. Oh, shit. Is it Some Kind of Wonderful? Is that what that movie was called? It had Eric Stoltz and Leah Thompson and um, Mary Stuart Masterson or Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. I always get their, their names. Uh, and then him, he plays like this, this kind of like uh, punky, like skinhead dude. And he was awesome in that. But um, what an actor that really, really showed some serious chops in this film. Oh, and, yeah. and he's never really been 
a big name and, you know, he's been in a lot of stuff, but, um, and we'll probably talk about scenes, but the, the scene where he's kind of defiant against Nick Nolte is just so good. And just the way that scene is filmed is beautiful. But yeah, again, another not big name that has a lot more substance than these so-called Hollywood stars. Right. And I think that was a really cool take of Terrence Malick to just kind of like, all right, cool. They'll be in the film, but (laughs) you know, this is, this is their, this is the film I'm trying to talk the hotel right here. One thing about Elias Codius is I always conflate him and Chris Maloney so much because they have like, essentially they have a very similar look. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And hairline, of course. Yeah. Or lack thereof. Right. (laughs) But I want to jump right in with the uh, performances and maybe some of the highlight scenes for me. Um, And I think we start off really strongly with um, the first meeting between Wit and and Sean Penn's character, Welsh. So Jim Caviezel. And wow, just what a a powerhouse scene that is. Um, Just... Really incredible, all the way, all around. I mean, not only the the dialogue and the performances, but the lighting in that scene are just just outstanding. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really impressive that you know you, you always hear Malik and you think beautiful cinematography, amazing shots, but I'll be damned if the guy cannot get amazing performances from his actors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. The amount of emotion that he draws from these guys in this film altogether from mm-hmm. just about every single person is just incredible. The amount of, whether it be pathos or just empathy or, mm-hmm. you know, disgust. And even, even then he balances things out with Nolte's character, who is sort of this like, um, I guess this career military guy who's, he's finally got his war and he's going to be hell, you know, damn it to hell if he's not going to get his his glory that he's earned for eating untold piles of shit, right. as he says. Um, but even then, I think later on when he's sitting alone, you can see him. He he sort of breaks down in tears and really shows a vulnerability about about losing the men. And mm-hmm. I think he recognizes his own, I guess, his own vanity. Yeah, um, I mean th- this movie. And it's interesting how they, I mean, how everybody has their, I'm not going to, I don't know, not necessarily ideology, but how their own beliefs are, they're shown and then completely kind of thrown upside down, which obviously, I mean, that, that that's kind of storytelling 101, but when you have such a large ensemble cast to be able to show that on multiple, uh, to multiple characters and do it pretty seamlessly without it making without it be feeling forced or rushed or anything. But back to this uh, wit and Welsh scene, which God, this I just love this dialogue. So Welsh says, "In this world, a man himself is nothing, and there ain't no world but this one." To which uh, Wit replies, "You're wrong, there, Top. I've seen another world." Sometimes I think it was just my imagination. Oh, wow. That's just, woo. Oh, that's incredible. But then he comes back and he's like, uh, then you've seen things I never will. Boom. Wow. Mm-hmm. Just incredible. Um, it's interesting, too. I wanted, uh, maybe I'll say, I'll save this actual, actually for the uh, sort of thematic elements, but that quote about 
there ain't there ain't no world but this one very much reminds me of uh there's some philosophical significance to that whole thing mm-hmm. so so um i guess one of the things that is kind of important with the the relationship that you have with wit versus welsh is wit is this very like spiritual character and welsh is the exact opposite he's very i don't know necessarily jaded but has kind of like just a cynical yeah. uh way at, at looking at at the world and where wit everything is just a very like philosophical and religious um and like spirit not religious but like spiritual uh perspective in life and so for those that haven't seen this film and obviously you should you have these two not not necessarily adversaries really but i mean at least adversaries in beliefs and yet i, th- I mean there's obviously a mutual respect but um Sean Penn has utters this really really great line and i'm going to butcher it you might have the actual quote but essentially about like i, m- I might be your best friend if you don't know it or something yeah. I, forget what, I forget what the line is but i might be the best friend you've ever had you don't even know it. Yep. God, the way he delivers the line is mm-hmm. the whole, that's yeah. it. All of it is yep. in the performance and just, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. God damn Sean Penn. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Just, it's fantastic. And um, so I think, and again, this movie is about four hours long and there's so many characters, <laughs> but the these are the two next to Nick Nolte and um, um I can't believe Private Star- Staros, yeah. Captain Captain Staros. Yeah. yeah, you're right. But yeah, Staros. This the, this interaction is probably like the the most recurring uh, between Sean Penn and Jim Caviezel, and I think they've got like five five scenes together, and they're <laughs> and they each get better and better um, to the final to the final scene that they have together. But yeah, there's another. I don't even remember the actor's name, but you'll remember this scene for sure. Is Whenever they're on the boat and they're going, they're on their way to Guadalcanal and there's this kind of, he's a real country young kid and he's like, uh, you know, I, I used to sleep in a chicken coop a lot of nights. I'm living by the minute. I'm counting the seconds yep. here. Mm-hmm. I want I want to own an automobile when I get out of here, man. <laughs> yeah. thought that was hilarious. Shows up at the end later on with a sort of similar analysis of things, which I thought was pretty funny. He's like, I think it's like, there's only two things that, and that's dying and the Lord, and that's it. That's it, man. <laughs> I'm trying to remember that bit, that line. There's so much in this movie just to like kind of like unpackage, and um, but that wasn't the same actor, or was it the same actor that he's uh, or he's, he's like my father has a saying that you know it can get worse before it gets better. Yeah, yeah, that, that's him. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is he not the guy that does the like the like the narration, like the beginning of the film and the end of the film. I don't think so. I think that is Dash Mihawk, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, I think. Okay, it's sort of hard to tell though, yeah. for sure. But I'm pretty sure that's Dash, actually. The one thing I, I guess I should have uh, listened to that on commentary or not comment uh, with caption just to find out. I thought there was a Nolte had a good line too. Whenever he's with Travolta, and I think that whole scene is really great when they're on the boat. And they're just preparing for the invasion. And he's giving a little line. He says, the closer to Caesar, the greater the fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's a good line. That's a good line. 
is an amazing scene too just like from the cinematography of it they do like sort of a they do a weird like dance like the choreography mm-hmm. and the blocking of that scene is very much like it's dynamic and the camera's moving around we're getting a lot of uh steady cam work yeah sorry i'm just i'm just watching the scene in my head <laughs> right it's really good and uh once again just to, for the people that haven't seen it to understand nick nolte he's a you know, he, he's an officer that's been passed over for, for like command and uh, other, other opportunities. And now like that he's been in for, I guess, at least 14 years, he, this, he's hoping will be like his moment of, of glory. So he looks at some of his superior officers as, you know, kind of that they're assholes and that this is going to be his war and this is going to be his moment, um, at all costs. There's so many little great lines with this cast too that like you'll catch there'll be one line from an actor and that's mm-hmm. like the only time you see them in the whole film. And one of those, there's like this, the guy from the Bronx that's like, you know, how how the fuck did I know there was going to be a war or whatever? Yeah. And he's talking to, I forget, is what's the guy? Is it Everett? Not Everett McGill, but I forget the actor. Um, But he's like, brood on it till brood on it. <laughs> <laughs> That I thought was really funny. Um, and that same sort of... So still on the boat, Ben Chaplin as well, when he's telling the story about how he was in originally in the Army Corps of Engineers, and then he quit because he hadn't... He had, had never been apart from his wife for more than like a few days or a few yep. weeks or something. And so he ended up quitting, and they said they'd put him in the... In, infantry or they'd you know strip him from his commission Mm -hmm. and uh, put him in the infantry and that was whatever and but he was somehow okay with all of that because he could be with his wife or yeah yeah don't i don't necessarily and so here's the thing the movie is brilliant in, in many levels um and you know it almost feels a little unfinished um when trying to like unpackage like some of the the characters arcs and that one right there is one of the more interesting which is like ben chaplin's character in general with obviously he's got some really great inner monologues in the film like some really really beautiful inner monologues and then of course he has he receives a letter later on which kind of shatters his world but i I still come away with a a couple questions as far as how again how he got there and one of the final scenes that we have is really is with him uh, being involved when they when like the discussion of sending Adrian Brody's character and I, maybe you know maybe you've got some um, other perspectives, but I never really felt that I totally understood his overall arc at the in the in the end when just I don't know I I don't know how to figure out Ben Chaplin's character. I mean I. I take a more holistic approach in the sense of what Malik is doing is really not trying to give us those answers and not focusing on that narrative continuity. Mm-hmm. And he's really essentially just giving us these vignettes throughout the film that reveal character. Right. So, I mean, whether that's, you know, good or bad, it's certainly frustrating maybe later on. And I, I want to discuss this perhaps later on is that, this film, I think, really works well in the sort of um, because there is a more cohesive narrative right. plot structure. Like, there's a beginning and an end mm-hmm. to it, sort of naturally. 
um, even though that he sort of does meander and leaves things unanswered from care from that sort of standpoint. Right. But that was sort of my biggest I takeaway was like, yeah, this is this is just revealing character through vignettes mm-hmm. more so than through more like a tr- more traditional film that would really focus on you know just a more a handful of characters yeah and reveal and reveal more and more about them so i guess where i get i totally get all that so it, it just seems for me a little unfinished when obviously like his whole motivation is to to see his wife again or you know or even if he dies knowing that he'll he'll see her or you know he he has this he has this other person back home and then he receives his letter which completely shatters his world and then the next scene he's he's telling the uh the ranking whether officer or enlisted person like hey this is what we need to do that suggestion potentially puts all of them in danger so i guess where i'm i I get kind of curious is does he do that is he doing that because he wants to put them not like like not like want I want to harm us or is it I don't I, I it's like that scene that I that I don't understand because it's his final scene I we don't see the the I don't I don't know if we ever see the his reaction to the consequences of of that decision that's true and then you know honestly you may be very well onto something in the sense of <laughs> how much footage was cut out of this film mm-hmm. to make it fit. Because I was thinking about this too. I noticed specifically with him, with his character as a private, and then he is awarded a field commission, right. and they refer to him as sergeant later on in the film, but they never they sort of skip over that right. portion yeah. of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Very well, it could have just been <laughs> left out and, for and this it, sort of very poetic yeah, and, vision of the film that and the, uh, the thing is, it really doesn't change a whole lot in in the overall film. You know, like the old, the entire story, right? What I'm kind of hung up on is kind of like a small detail, but it was something that just kind of like yeah. one of those like, hmm. Well, we do focus a lot of our, you know, a lot of scenes are focused on him and his relationship, and there's not a resolution there. So yeah, I can, I can definitely get where you're coming from for sure but that, that that's so it's just one of the like the questions and maybe it's you know um uh, i'd have to watch the movie yet again i mean it's it's obviously like a terrence malick film the the replay factor is high if you can if you can move beyond the that you're you're gonna feel down a lot but the it, it's just so beautiful to look at and you know there's there's a lot going on so if you enjoy cinema and you and like film analysis, Terrence Malick is perfect, but so you can't, you can watch a movie a dozen times, two dozen times and still not have picked up everything. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that now is, uh, I should have said this at the beginning, but when I first saw this film is roughly when it came out in, in 99 mm-hmm. and I did not like it at all. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was, of course, this was like, this came out the same year as Saving Private Ryan. Those two movies will always be like, uh, yeah, right. It's like, like disgust in like the, in the same conversation. You'll, they, they can't escape each other. And, and, and that's one, I mean, they're, they're both really, really fantastic films in what they are. Right. But 
they can't be any more different. And yet those two movies are so often paired together. So yeah, upon my first viewing, I, I didn't like it at all. And I was like, mm-hmm. what is this? And then I saw it many years later or I, several years later and liked it. Mm-hmm. And it's like every time I started, I would watch it. I would be like, wow, this is, this is great. Why? Yeah. I love this. I yeah. remember hating this film when I first saw it until it eventually became my favorite of all time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about that too. In the sense, it's funny that it's actually the two contrasting styles. I almost think that what Spielberg does is more difficult than what Malick does in many ways. It, there's a certain ease to being able to just, oh, I'm just going to shoot six miles of film and then I'll sort of find the film in the editing process. Right. Versus, and I'm going to like use a bunch of voiceover to tie together these vignette scenes Mm -hmm. and I'm not really going to necessarily have things in an orderly system the way that you would if obviously Spielberg is you know what I mean he's got a he's running a tighter ship in terms of without a doubt without a doubt um and he's also he's not relying on um voiceover he's relying on action yeah um to reveal character you know it's absolutely um uh, a well, well, well-made point. I, I'm not. Gonna, I, I don't know if it's necessarily easier than what Spielberg does. I mean, they're they're both they're. I mean, they're both fantastic filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, Spielberg. You, you can have your opinion on it. The guy is still brilliant. You know, one of the finest filmmakers ever. Uh, even though that there are a lot of haters out there, Spielberg's a genius. Uh, but anyway, but I just I just had an idea. Or something just came into my mind when you just mentioned all the the voiceovers in the film, and where there's kind of discussion on because some of the uh, some of the voices kind of sound familiar, and then they kind of like intertwine, they kind of like weave around, they kind of like go on. It's kind of like a vine, which is interesting, seeing that the film you know often talks about about vines and and nature and how it just how that goes on while you know you know. Uh, us we we come we go but it's the nature that kind of moves on but so where normally a ton of voiceovers would bother me it almost becomes kind of it works in in where i would normally be like there's too many voiceovers yeah but when you're using nature as a theme in the film having so many different characters with inner monologues that are that are kind of narrating what we're what we're seeing and then you kind of question whose voice am I listening to now? If sometimes the, the person that we're, that we're tracking visually isn't the person that's speaking, you know, uh, that we're, that we're listening to that. Yeah. It's just kind of, kind of like a vine, but anyway, that's just something that just came into my head. You know, what's weird for me is that a lot of the films that I like, I think a lo- quite a few of them do have some inner monologue mm-hmm. voiceover quite a few actually. Yeah, I Interestingly mean, thinking about it. When I look at your the the top five, um, I mean, you had Blade Runner, which does and does not have <laughs> right, uh, depending on the view that you that <laughs> he- you've got. What is it, Heisenberg's movie? Yeah. Um, then you had a movie that you had that you took off your list in Memento. Memento has obviously uh, where he a lot of inner monologue. This film, Apocalypse Now. That was also on the list, wasn't it? Yeah, Apocalypse. Yeah, yeah I was going to do it, but then I thought... I, you already had a war movie. I had a war movie, and I thought that 
the thin red line really dealt or handled treated the idea of the sort of war at the heart of the human soul Mm -hmm. in a much in a much more interesting way or i don't know when i was thinking about it, it was like coppola's film was i loved it but looking back on it and watching it it felt like more of a happy accident than right. an intentional. Yeah. Because the produ- I mean, even the production of it was a disaster in many respects. I don't know if you've ever looked at, there's a film, I think, The Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Or something yep. um, that is a background documentary on the, on the filming. And it just felt like he, like a lot of it just came together so well and he just lucked out mm-hmm. and making it this very esoteric film that it might not necessarily been intended to be so. And I thought this was very much more, was much more authentic. And that was its initial pursuit. And I think it handled it in a much broader context. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. Um, to, uh, yeah. And just going somewhere um, where another thing, just because we had talked about saving private Ryan and you bring up apocalypse now, and both those, and then I started thinking about Platoon as well, and now... Yeah, because Platoon also has voiceover, right? Mm-hmm, I believe so, yeah. So, um, but what's really... What I love about all those movies, obviously, I, th- I mean, you get some fantastic performances, um, which, I mean, that, that goes across the board, but one of the things that I really enjoy about this film is how sometimes it's not necessarily, it's not low budget by any means, but while there's all this chaos going on and, you know, people are, people are dying. Um, for me, one of like the, the more impactful images is how like what we do has the effect on nature. Like you, you see the bird, right? Like the bird that's all beat the fuck, uh, you know, uh, because of what's going on, what we're doing. Um, and then, when Jared Leto like signals to the guys to go up and they, they don't and they signal signal and they, they go and then, you know, they get popped and then, you know, they fall down and you just have like the sweeping like grass and everything. And that's something just to go back to, um, that Spielberg does that maybe is easier or whatnot. The, just the, 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 the visual or the, the imagery that you get with the with this in, in Terrence Malick. I mean, there, there's something very, again, uh, where you had said it, like a poem. It's just very poetic to to talk about the the consequences or just the effects of of how we or like people in in war. You know, like how it affects nature, um, and how it doesn't affect nature. How it doesn't. How it doesn't. Obviously, like the, the vines. You know, they'll they'll continue to grow and grass will continue to be there you know it may burn down but it'll 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 grow where we we just blow our blow our own asses up you know and yeah and the world moves on and i think that's really clearly put forth in the film at the end whenever the final shot is the uh what was it a is it a coconut i believe it's a coconut it's a coconut with like a stem is growing out so things are life is regenerating Mm -hmm. itself yeah, but uh, it's funny that you mentioned that Jared Leto scene too because I, I when I'm sitting here, th- I always thought that the I didn't notice this or really art know how to articulate it, but the sound design there because it's funny because when he's like he's like yep. <laughs> really moving his arm, he's like yep. go go, but it's like the way his shirt, the sound of his shirt yep. is like really taut, like go go go. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, man. It's really funny with Leto as well because he is, plays a bit role in so many movies that I love. But just a really small role, like in Fight Club. Yeah. He's the blonde guy. And then um, in American Psycho, he is Paul oh, Allen. Oh, God. So great. <laughs> and then in this the, film, the business card scene. In, yeah. Uh, oh, God. that's We're going to have to do that movie one day. We, yeah, we really should have to do that one. Yeah. There's a lot to get into on that film. And his gum chewing in this scene, too, mm-hmm. as well. He's just like, <laughs> just going at it. Yeah. Really funny. But there, I have like a giant list, basically, of, of scenes and dialogue that I just jotted down that awesome. I, I love in this. Um, yeah, I've got a list of like uh, the scenes that I really, that I liked as well. I had Leto's scene written down. Um, <laughs> wanted to talk about that. Um. I was going to joke about John C. Riley. Like, this is when he... He's another guy that... It's so funny that his career sort of flipped. Like, he was in all these really uh, highly lauded films, and then he, like, started going the opposite direction to make... You know what I mean? It's funny. It's like, he was in all these great art house or yeah, artsy movies, like Magnolia, and, yeah. this, um, you know, even Gangs of New York. I guess he had sort of a bigger role in that, but... He was in so many different... Now he's just in movies with Will Ferrell. Yeah. yeah. What, a, what a strange career to yeah. Because usually it's like the other way. It's usually somebody... Because if you think in the context of somebody like Sean Penn that was... He was started out as Spicoli, yep. of all things. Yeah. And here he is, you know, 20 years later, or 10, 15, 20 years later doing this Three role, years later. Right? <laughs> doing this role, and he's got amazing acting chops. Yep. Whatever else you want to say about the guy. And I'm not the biggest fan anymore, but, uh, damn. That's just it. I don't, like, it, it's a weird thing, right? Um, you just have to assume that if you're... <clears throat> I have a major crush on on Robin Wright, so... Yeah, it's just... <laughs> Part of it's stemming from that. Yeah, he, he's an asshole. I, yeah. I, I mean, he's an absolute asshole. Uh, I'm not going to defend him. But fuck is if, if he isn't an absolutely brilliant actor, you know, and, and and that's one of those one of those those lines that you draw, like where where you say, okay, you know, I accept that aspect of his life because I appreciate this aspect of his life, you know, and it's weird. It, it's a really weird line, and I think I think it's okay to think somebody's a horrible human being and still think that they're also a brilliant, uh, brilliant mind uh, that are capable of doing some... And perspective is one thing. I mean, a year ago, a year ago, we, we all thought Kevin Spacey was just the, the the coolest motherfucker ever. Yeah, just a charming dude. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, what, what a difference a year makes, right? And he's a fantastic actor, uh, just great actor that can just command the the entire room um and now i don't know if yeah because of you know choices that he's made that i'm not going to get into you know politics of anything but he's not going to have a career um going forward but so going just back to sean penn dick of a guy but absolutely brilliant brilliant actor speaking of though we're gonna have to go back to and do la confidential one day yeah because yeah. I thought, man, Spacey was fantastic yeah. in that Freeze, too. police. Yeah, uh, great. Yeah. But it's it's funny that you mentioned that too because I've 
also in the context of Martin Heidegger, who is one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th, 20th century, was also a Nazi, which trying to like figure that out is also right. like, what yeah. the fuck? Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Really weird. How do you uh, resolve those two things? It's so bizarre. Yep. But anyways, back to the performances. And I think uh, my next notes were on Elias Codius and just how, God, the guy was, his eyes. Mm-hmm. Just the, what he can do with just his eyes alone in this film was incredible. Like just the sadness and the the shock and just the different array of emotions mm-hmm. that he was able to convey with just his eyes. And um, like the look on his face when he's on the phone with Nolte yep. on the hill and he's just so disoriented and he's just like looking around <laughs> Uh, he's like ducking whenever the shells are hitting and stuff. Well, one that that scene's absolutely killer. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. But yeah, I mean, such an just, amazing vulnerability. Just, to yeah, him. that you know that's I mean? the word I was looking for. It's just the vulnerability that he has, and oh man, just so good, just so so damn good. He's like the father, the father that you always wanted. Yeah, in many respects. And like the loving father, like the Jesus Christ figure almost. Right. And that's like one of the last lines that, you know, that he has in the film is that, you know, that you're, you are my, like my sons and yeah. What a good dude. <laughs> Hopefully he's not an asshole. But no. well, I, I hope not. I hope not. Yeah. Well, I refuse to believe that Casey Jones would uh, be an asshole. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. He's a New Yorker. He's tough. Yeah. He's got a cricket mallet. <laughs> yeah i want to talk about my boy dash mihawk though cause yeah man that's his yeah i couldn't i couldn't remember his name i could not i really i was cringing a little bit at his voiceover but just the way just his southern accent was just like eh, this, this is kind of bad right and some of them were pretty bad throughout the movie um even ben chaplin had one where i was like oh, oh you're going too far there bro yeah but damn um that guy as well with the eyes. Okay, so the scene whenever with the bunker. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, so whenever Woody Harrelson, not actually, we forgot to mention the Woody Harrelson. Yeah, I thought, we were, I thought we were gonna. I thought we were gonna get to Woody at some point, <laughs> dude. I small role, but again, I I loved I loved Woody in this movie. Um, oh, he was great. Yeah, but so he pulls the pin out of the grenade by accident, and then he notices it. He looks at Ben Chaplin in the face, and he's like, "Oh shit!" So he's like jumps around so that the i guess the shrapnel only injures him yep and he's laying there and he's like basically blew a part of his i don't know his, his torso off he yeah. says butt yeah. but i don't know they never really show too much yeah they don't show anything thank god um <laughs> right but basically yeah i mean because he had the the grenade was you know like on his belt right so i mean you have to assume that he just blew his entire bottom half of his body off yeah. um which that can't imagine like the pain. Right. But there, I mean, there was an element of, you know, he made a mistake, but there was like this heroic moment where he, he's still in that moment. He's still saved, you know, those guys lives by him taking, taking, um, that, that, that explosion jumping on the literally jumping on the grenade. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but, uh, he's there lying on the ground and he's writhing in pain and he's, 
asked someone to write his wife and he asked dash he's yeah. like yeah i'll do it and then then like once he dies he's just like oh he's freaking out he's like just yeah apoplectic almost <laughs> like mm-hmm. he's in a like he doesn't really want to do it he's like no i just i'll, I'll tell him anything when they're yeah, like that yeah exactly just like oh my god but the like, portrait- i don't know his wife <laughs> <laughs> but god if he's not just something about his bewildered sort of he's i don't he i don't even know how you can draw from what you can draw from to create that he's confused yeah he's it's a mixture of confusion and horror and sadness and you know what i mean all at once mm-hmm. yeah that, that's be be all of the emotions at once and go <laughs> right and so much of it is the like just the j- look in his face the way his eyes move and his, his mouth he yeah, yeah is kind of like uh his mouth is open a lot you know um when he's acting he's as just well. like it's just like he doesn't know what to do it's so genuine yeah it's so yeah it's amazing yeah very well he just could have had been in complete fear on the set like i don't know what i'm supposed to do so yeah. we just saw his his wasn't acting he was just genuinely like <laughs> confused on what he should be doing uh, that's hilarious um god he's got another scene where he kills one of the japanese soldiers and he's like he again is sort of in that freak out mode where he's like oh sh- i just killed a man it's, yeah it's the worst thing you could do even worse than rape and like all this stuff yeah and then he's like, I can't get there. I'm not going to get punished. I'm not even going to get punished for it. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, again, when he's like freaking out when they're taking the bunker and then, you know, he's the one that like charges up. Yeah. Just like ridiculous yep. hero style. Yeah. <laughs> Nearly getting blown up as he jumps back over the like yeah. edge of the ridge. Yeah. Um, Another great, well, th- that whole exchange, you already mentioned it between Nolte and Elias Codius's character on the phone, but what I, re- Nolte, whenever Nolte, he, okay, so he says, I'm, you know, I refuse to obey your order, and Nolte is like, he yep. can't, he can't talk. He's yeah. like so, he's so pissed yep. and just totally, again, he's apoplectic himself at this he's like doesn't know what to say and he doesn't say anything for you know a good minute or so yep. he, he's like he's gonna say something but he's like like he's taking breaths he can't, but he, he can't, can't fucking believe he can't even emote yeah he can't do anything yeah he, he just he can't at that moment can't dude that scene's so good and then like the 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 follow-up scene between the two of them um and he's like you don't have to tell me when I'm right or, uh, yeah. or you'll, the, you'll assume that I'm always right. Yeah. <laughs> but that discussion there, that was another really good scene, but the, the other Nolte scene I love is with, uh, with him and John Cusack and when John Cusack was talking about water and he's like, I don't need to be a wet blanket, but you know, and then he's like, Again, just the frustration that Nolte has. He's like, you know, I want, you know, like, want to be, he, 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 he just wants to win so much and getting water is just going to slow all this freaking momentum. Yeah. And, but again, it, John Cusack is in the movie for like 15 minutes and, and, and he crushes it in, in his 15 minutes, but he was like the one guy that is able to kind of like get through. Yeah. Uh, to Nick Nolte in that moment. He's got his respect. Yeah. 
and he's just so pissed off, so pissed off that he has to send three runners. <laughs> I want three runners. Yeah. <laughs> and that gravelly voice. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. Um, so I ran- randomly noticed too that Nick Stahl is in this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without, I don't even think he's got a line of dialogue. I don't think he does. But it's if I'm not mistaken, it's in that same bunker scene with um, with Woody. Oh, I, th- I think I think that's around the same time. But yeah, so Nick Stahl from uh, where he played what was it Hawkins on a uh, Carnival? Did you ever watch that show? I never did. I <sighs> I saw like the first two or three episodes because I did hear that it was great. I loved that show. Yeah, and just and like uh like Deadwood just ended way too soon. He also notoriously played the yellow bastard in Sin City. Oh yeah, yeah. I forget. I don't know which actor this is. I it was would have been hard to find out, but the guy that's kind of flipping out too. He's like p- picking up the grass. He's like, we're oh, just we're dirt. just dirt. Yep, we're just dirt. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't I don't know who that who that character was, but the the actor that delivered the lines did a great job in that scene. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I know who the actor is that did that. I don't either, but. He had some. He was so weird. Like, what was the what was that guy's deal? Like, <laughs> PTSD. Yeah, I guess so. That makes sense. Uh, let's see. We've we've covered a lot of actors. Um, trying to think if there's anybody. That, Thomas Jane's uh, oh, random yeah, cameo. Thomas Jane. Yep. I wasn't impressed with again his southern accent, but yeah. he looked great. <laughs> yeah. Why would everybody have to be southern? <laughs> right. Um. And then, yeah, we talked about Adrian Brody and Sean Penn, Jim Caviezel. I don't know if we've spoken enough about Jim Caviezel in this, though. We can nickname him Cavizus. I was <laughs> gonna, yeah. I was gonna bring up the scene where uh, him and Welsh, or so Welsh was telling, um, it's something along the lines of, "You're just, you should just look after yourself. You're running into a burning house where nobody can be saved." Mm-hmm. Just sort of telling him the futility of <laughs> of everything and trying to get him to take, you know, I guess, get rid of this sort of altruistic streak that yep. that Wit has and and focus on himself because there's you can't stop, no matter what, you can't stop what's coming, essentially. Yep. There's a futility. <sighs> yeah, the... I mean... There's not some other world out there where everything's going to be okay. Just this one, this rock. I think that's pretty sure that's the same scene. I think that it, yeah, but that's, that's a different scene, I believe, than when they're at the top, uh, that beautiful, beautiful scene uh, where Sean Penn does the, what's it, you know, what's it, what difference do you think you can make one single man in all this madness? And then that is his little like spit, like, um, but I, I love, I love the, that scene. I mean, it's just, I think that's like the, it's like a moment of calm. Yeah. But just, yeah, one of my, one of my favorite, favorite scenes in the whole film. And just Sean Penn's the one that's saying most of the lines, but you, you just, just Jim Caviezel just acting silently with a, with kind of a grin on his face or, 
or just kind of just calm and serene. It's those blue eyes that he has. They're so like, there's something about them. They're mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. They're just so bright. And then finally, you know, when he's uh, surrounded uh, at the end and he has, you know, just a, a different look on his face where he doesn't say anything. And yeah, but I think, I think he was more broken when he went back to that little village and he wasn't yeah, accepted. Yeah, he wasn't accepted. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, um, I don't know what Adrian Brody's role would have been, but I'm pretty sure that no matter, I mean, Adrian Brody's a fantastic actor, but I don't, I don't think he could be better than Caviezel was. Yes, yeah, I don't think he could have been either, to be honest. I had a note on that Cusack scene as well. I was, uh, let's see, I wanted to point out that uh, Nolte's sort of that, you know, he's the cold-blooded, he's got that desire for the glory, but he ultimately relents, and there's sort of a quiet intensity to Cusack yep. there in that scene. And he's just like, you don't know what it feels like to be passed over. You got your ward, this is my first ward. Yep. Like Nolte trying to trying to convince him, but... Cusack doesn't even argue with them. He doesn't he's say just, anything. Yeah, he just it's says, so great. He's just just looking at him. And I think like I think he knows that he's going to win like this discussion just like the just the power like when you negotiate, right? Like who speaks first is the one that loses. <laughs> so like he's like I've 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 this is what I'm offering and then you're just going to go ahead <laughs> and succumb to me. And that's just it was just so great. And that's like one of the last scenes that you see with Nick Nolte. I mean, um, with uh, John Cusack. Yeah. I wonder what el- what other scenes he shot for this. Yeah. It's curious, like what... I think there was like a five hour and 40 minute cut of this film Man. at one point. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> like an assembly cut or something. Yeah. Um, another great sequence is... I mean, we've already talked about this, but uh, Nolte discussing Saros getting relieved of duty. Mm-hmm. And he's explaining nature is cruel, Staros. And he talks about how, look at the vines, how they twirl yep. around the trees. Um, and he ba- basically ends up sending him back quietly and with, he's going to give him the purple heart and all this stuff, which is really quite generous for, yeah. <laughs> for what amounts to, what, insubordination? I mean, yep. that's pretty gross. Yeah. Disobeying a direct order. I imagine you could probably face some jail time. Yeah, it's a court martial right there. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So, pretty generous of Nolte. Yeah. So, I I think there, you know, as harsh as he comes across in a lot of this film, there is a certain element of sympathy for him, you know? Yeah, there's no, there's no antagonist in this film. There's no bad guy. Um, I mean, we're... We're, we're just, we're, we're watching this war and then everybody's internal war that they're, they're also fighting in, even though Nick Nolte is kind of the, you know, bit of a, like the, the salty officer from being passed over there. He's still, he's still a good dude. Even the, the, the fucking Japanese, you know, uh, soldiers, they're not. You know they're not bad, as you see when that 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 again one of my uh, just a beautiful scene is the dead Japanese soldier like in like that's basically all buried. Oh uh, yeah, oh yeah. 
and and then the monologue that's going over while we're you know while we're looking at him and yeah and it's just you know was this person loved and you know who was this person and it just yeah um just there's a uh, so there's a shot later on with Nolte. He's sitting in the chair by himself, and he's got just his brows are furrowed, and he's sort of glancing around, and he see he's looking at some of the corpses of the dead soldiers, and he sort of breaks down. I think under the shame of of his his you know him seeking the glory of war, mm-hmm. and it really I think at that moment hit home that there's a cost to glory. Yep. That he hadn't really ever considered, you know what I mean. He had, he even mentioned to Cusack, you know, this is my first war. He there was a certain like he had been looking forward to his opportunity to to seek glo- or to attain glory. Yep. And then when he when he sort of gets it, he realizes, you know, it's not it's not what he thought it was going to be, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And then Staros goes. He visits. Uh, let's see. He visit, visits Dash Mihawk, John C. Riley some others and brings them some booze <laughs> some johnny walker i yeah. think and some other stuff um tells them in greek you've been like my sons yeah you are my sons my dear sons you'll live inside me now me now i'll carry you wherever i go wow that was just powerhouse acting too mm-hmm. and that's voiceover like i mean and it's just as you're just watching like the plane and everything and him boarding on the plane leaving and it's uh yeah the, the movie is brutal but it, it's 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 still very very sincere and sweet in in many ways how come they all had to die and i can stand right here and nothing happens to me nothing happens yep <laughs> John C. Riley does have one of my favorite lines from him, though, is this one. He goes, I think it's, uh, it's, I think it's his only line in the whole film, and it's great. It's a matter of luck whether you get killed. You're in the wrong spot at the wrong time. You're going to get it. I look at that boy dying, and I don't feel nothing. I don't care about nothing anymore. Then Sean Penn says, Sounds like bliss. Yep. Um, and he says, He says something about maybe, you know, I don't, I don't have that feeling. Maybe it's because I knew what to expect, or maybe it's because I was, um, maybe because I was frozen up inside already. Right. Which was just, ah, another incredible scene. And then the scene um, with Penn and Wit in that hut. And uh, one of my other favorite lines is like, uh, what is it? Uh, Do you ever feel lonely? Only around people. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, uh, so it's like, you care about me, don't you, Sarge? Why do you always make yourself out like a rock? One day I can come and talk to you, and the next day it's like we never even met. Lonely house now. You ever get lonely? Only around people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you still believe in the beautiful light, are you? How do you do that? You're a magician to me. And Wit says, I still, I still see a spark in you. That's just incredible, right? Mm-hmm. And then at the end, after uh, Wits died, another just outstanding bit of dialogue that I'll go ahead and read. Everything a lie. Everything you hear, everything you see, so much to spew out. 
They just keep coming, one after the other. You're in a box, a moving box. They want you dead, or in their lie. Only one thing a man can do, find something that's his, and make an island for himself. If I never meet you in this life, let me feel the lack. A glance from my eyes, or your eyes, and my life will be yours. Man, my voice is cracking just reading mm-hmm. that. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Ooh. I get I really do get emotional just reading that that line especially uh with some things that are going on in my personal life at this moment that hits me pretty hard. Yeah. How you doing, man? I'm hanging in there, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of the uh, private Welsh in this conversation right. and I'll, I'll get you will be playing the role of wit here. Yep. But I'm I'm the world-weary um cynic mm-hmm. <laughs> in all of this, which I think maybe is why this film has such a an appeal to me yeah it's just that that dialogue between the idealist and the materialist philosophy and viewpoints some other powerhouse acting though is uh we've talked about ben chaplin but when he gets that dear john letter from his wife his re- his reaction is just and I don't think there's any real dialogue after. So he, after he actually reads the letter, it's basically in the voiceover from his actual wife's voice. But he's sort of he's upset again. He's, again, it's this weird confluence of disbelief. emotions. Disbelief. Yeah, yeah, there's sort of disbelief, and he's crushed. But he even cracks a smile, sort of at the end, which is weird. And I don't know if that's just again. I think it just comes down to like just disbelief. Like, like everything that I know is wrong. Like that, that's just everything, my entire strength that I've, that I've had is wrong. Especially after hearing that story earlier about how he sacrificed his commission yep. with the Army Corps of Engineers. Yep. Mm-hmm. And now he's here in the infantry in Guadalcanal because of that decision. Yep. Which sort of renders that in many ways and that's, mute, and that, and, right? Yeah. And that's why like I'm, it, I'm, I'm frustrated because I, you know, um, for for his conclusion when it comes to what ultimately leaves, leads to um, Jim Caviezel's death. I think, I mean, he's, he's crushed, but the honesty of her confession is also, the tragedy of it is really immense as well. Like, she's so honest. She says, you know, we'll, we'll meet again someday. People who've been as close as as we've been always meet again, I have no right to speak to you this way. Oh, friend of mine. Oh, friend of all these shining years. Help me leave you. Whoa. Yeah, I hate Miranda Otto. <laughs> I hate her. <laughs> but are, are there any sort of outstanding scenes or acting moments that we didn't cover there? I'm I'm at the end of mine. Um, that we probably could have done an entire... Yeah, um... Like, so, Probably could do like a three-part, <laughs> as long as this film was. Oh, I guess the, another scene that 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 got me was the the captured crocodile at the end, because you see it in the beginning of the film, and then you know just again just another another consequence of 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 war. You know, captors aren't necessarily just people. Sometimes you know, um, a, a free animal. You know, that is now. Uh, a trophy for these these soldiers that like hey we captured a crocodile 
Yeah, and the shoulder poking at it violently and, yep. and all of that. Uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting maybe metaphor for the Japanese in the film in that, I don't know, there was... This, there's sort of an equivalence between the Americans and the Japanese and they view this... I don't know, just a... It's almost like the alligator or the crocodile set up as a sort of force of nature. Mm-hmm. And which is sort of outside something like human morality or our judgment. And then sort of we, they end up attacking it as this metaphor or symbol of the Japanese. And it kind of ties in, I think, in many respects in sort of a allegory to the, it reminded me very much of the Japanese um, village or camp that they capture mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think there's any other specific bits that come to mind. There's there's so many, but we kind of covered the the meat and potatoes of what I really enjoyed. Ready to jump into some cinematography? Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, well, we got a little uh tall, right? So the the film really I. I should have mentioned this earlier, but the film sort of opens with this whole where Wit is on this tropical island and it's sort of a paradise where we spend the first probably 30, 30 to 45 minutes yeah. of the film are spent on this island. And some of the shots there are just gorgeous. We're in this sort of mangrove spot and there's sort of a mist in the air and that's sort of swirling and we're doing sort of these low angle shots. Some of the sun, the sun is peering through the trees, through the canopy, creating these really cool beams of light that are just beautiful. Um, early on to the ship, the giant ship, that's just, I love the way like the frontal view of the ship mm-hmm. just kind of cutting through the waves and it's sort of bouncing up and down a little bit. Um, some of the just the natural imagery in the, amongst the mangroves again. The, a lot of the, I mean, really the, I think the highlight visually though, or maybe from a cinematography standpoint is all of this, the whole series of scenes that are involved in the taking of the hill. Yep. There's a lot of, we've got a lot of steady, steady cam. We've got a lot of handheld cam. We've got a lot of super fast tracking shots that are all, I mean, it's hard to even break them down because there's so many just incredible shots that really get into the, give you sort of the grunt's eye view Mm -hmm. of the war because we're, you know, we're handheld cameras in the faces of, of our actors and right there in the grass, there's blood splattering on the lens there's dirt there's you know we're in the we're in the we're in the mire right with those guys mm-hmm. i'd love to see a behind the scenes on how on how they shot some of this stuff especially sometimes some of those shots the dolly shots are like zooming by at a super fast rate. yeah yeah no it, like, i don't even think this could be a steady cam operator running up a hill that fast it's it's exhausting. Like, it, like just, like, just even like thinking about just some of the sh- those just scenes on how they were able to be 
constructed in the first place, but they're all really, really, yeah, they're just really solid. Just, um, and again, I, I, I talked about the Jared Leto scene, uh, but when those two soldiers go down and then you just have just that cut, you know, with the, with it filmed, um, from a low looking up when you just have like the grass, like sweeping in, in silence, essentially, it's just, just beautiful, just beautiful, uh, imagery. So many of those shots. I had a, I have a note here. It's, sometimes this movie, this movie just reminds me of planet earth. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think of, uh, the next movie he did the new world, which is also very much the same, but that's even, that's even less narrative than this, but also just gorgeous, mm-hmm. gorgeously shot. The river, the river sort of jungle scene where the Japanese sort of emerge. That is awesome because you've got that clearing and then, um, and they just kind of come. The river sort of splits into yep. a Y and they just sort of slowly emerge and they're all covered in ferns and whatnot. Yep. And they just look beautiful. But yeah, pretty much the whole the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. Is um, nothing but impressive. The whole the whole taking of the bunker area was also just yeah the again that was very fast and frenetic and just um, oh the the shot where he throws the the grenade in one of the bunkers and the, the, the grenade explodes and like the flames like that they kind of like peer right through like the like the wood um, just a really really cool shot uh, but yeah the entire movie. The entire movie. <laughs> so uh, many of my notes just say like, oh, the shot in the grass. Oh, the shot in the grass. Yeah. The Sean Penn uh wit scene where again the the like the like the when the sun's going down or whatnot and they're they're just chatting right there and you've got that like that movie poster scene right there. I mean it's just it's just a beautiful, beautiful, just wonderful colors and the way that both um Sean Penn and Jim Caviezel are kind of like framed in that. It's just, yeah, just classic. Just really, really beautiful. So I read or heard that Malik's style or his method was to shoot scenes at three different times of day. Like he would do an early morning scene, a midday scene, and then a magic hour scene. Mm -hmm. And then he would just cut whatever worked that way he had coverage for whatever he wanted to do Mm -hmm. which i thought was interesting Interesting. but who could you know of course if you have the time and budget to do that but not a lot of people are given that how long was he like the principal photography for this film i don't even know but it god i feel like it wasn't it wasn't extraordinarily long Hmm. so i think they shot for something like two and a half months on the solomon islands they shot a little bit in Australia. They spent some time in the Solomon Islands. So it was three or four months yeah. of actual shooting time. What about, uh, do you have any more cinematography notes? Um, again, the, the dead Japanese soldier. I love, uh, I love. I, yeah, that was great. Yeah. I want to get to that later because I think I have that. I had that more in my themes okay. section. Cool. Because I really love that scene as well. Yeah. 
but yeah, that is great because he's sort of he's buried in soot, except mm-hmm. for sort of just the really from his eyebrows down to his chin, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. He almost looks like an ancient, almost like a Buddha statue that's been d- covered up in in dirt or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my notes, it's, yeah, that's, that's what I've got. All right. So moving into writing, which I think this, I'll say this is more like just, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, just one last thing for the cinematographer, John Tall, um, who's done, um, several war films, several, um, Braveheart, um, Legends of the Fall. Another very, very beautiful film. Tropic Thunder. <laughs> uh, so he worked with Nolte a couple times. Uh, and, interesting. It, and there's another one that he's done, but I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm losing it right now. But yeah, um, he's done some good stuff. I think he's, he's won an Oscar once, maybe twice. Last Samurai, Cloud the Atlas. La- Last Samurai, that was the other one I was thinking of. Not, a, not the greatest film in the world, but again, not a bad, not a bad looking film. He did the pilot for Breaking Bad. Oh, that's Bad. right. He did do Breaking Bad. Yeah. Yeah. Gone did. Baby Gone, Seraphim Falls, Vanilla Sky, Captain Corelli's Mandolin. He did Vanilla Sky? Oh, look at that. Almost yeah. Famous, Simpatico, The Rainmaker, Jack, Legends of the Fall, you already said. Uh, let's see. Wow. Damn. That's a hell of, yeah. <laughs> that's a, hell yeah. of a career. Yeah. Wow. So shooting in the jungle is something Iron that- Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3? Yeah. Yeah, but shooting in the jungle, something he's got pretty yeah, good. He's skilled as yeah. well. It's funny too because uh, now Malik primarily works with uh, El Chivo. Yeah, like Emmanuel Lubisky, or I can't even pronounce his name. And I like, I honestly like the cinematography in this probably better than some of those later films. Mm-hmm. I don't know the New World I quite liked, but really, I think Tree of Life was the last film post thin red line that i saw i haven't seen the most recent ones that malik's done it's king of cups and like to the wonder or something but i want to jump into i guess like i said this is i don't know if this is writing or if this is just dialogue Let's that i do it that i really enjoyed and it was uh dash mihawk asking at the beginning is there an avenging power in nature right and then the Polynesian lady with the, whenever wits, like she's got the little kid and he's, he's like, oh, he looks tired. And she says, if it's dreams he wants, he will sleep. And then uh, <laughs> even Travolta has a great line. He's like, when he's talking to Nolte at the beginning, he's like, so goddamn hard to stay upright. <laughs> <laughs> Nolte, like he's, saying dying slow as the tree <laughs> and that same sequence he's like do you feel it yes sir <laughs> whenever they're talking on the ship yeah 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 yeah. i was just it took me a second there uh, there's great i mean the the dialogue in the movie is there's some really really great lines in there and obviously the monologues are beautiful but yeah there it just this is something that I think, just to go ahead and kind of compare it with a movie that it's often paired with, like Saving Private Ryan, 
I think there's far the, the the dialogue in this movie. I think outranks uh, Saving Private Ryan. I think there's just some really really great dialogue. That, Very poetic that, mm-hmm. as well. Ben Chaplin's "Why Should I Be Afraid to Die?" I belong to you. If I go first, I'll wait for you there on the other side of the dark waters. Be with me now. I thought it was pretty funny too. I just noticed, I had never noticed this until I watched the movie with subtitles on. And it's whenever Woody Harrelson, okay, so they're they're kind of posted up somewhere and they're within earshot of the Japanese bunker. And uh, he said, so Woody's saying, uh, Tojo is shit. And the guy says, no, Roosevelt yeah. is yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really hilarious and something that I had never noticed on the first uh, on the first like ten washes. So that's really funny. Oh, I love that bit. That was so funny. Another Ben Chaplin line: "We we together, one being. We flow together like water till I can't tell you from me. I drink you now. Just gorgeous stuff. I want to stay changeless for you." I want to come back to you, the man I was before. How do we get to those other shores, to those blue hills? Poetry. And then Dash again. Love, where does it come from? Who lit this flame in us? No war can put it out. Conquer it. I was a prisoner, and you set me free. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. But yeah, I don't know about, in, in the sense of like screenwriting, some of this is obviously not very show, don't tell. <laughs> yeah. I also think in the in the sense of editing, like we could have done away with a lot of like the, the shots of at the beginning of sort of whenever Jim Caviezel's talking about how his mother was passing, was going to pass away and they mm-hmm. do the shots of like the cutaways to that. And then also the cut the shots of uh, of Bell's wife or Ch- Ben Chaplin's wife, like the movie could have been. We, you know, we could have cut those scenes out. I don't think just her hanging out on a swing. Yeah, looking up at going to the ocean. And, yeah, especially now, like how much I hate her. <laughs> um, yeah, the the less uh, if we just go ahead and do a cut, get rid of her, and maybe add a Mickey Rourke scene in there. <laughs> right. Any other comments about the writing? I mean, obviously, this it's a Terrence Malick film, so the, the story is going to be a little unconventional. Uh, the screenplay itself still works in that there was a beginning, middle, and end. The The screenplay itself, I think, was really, really good. The the, the dialogue, um, again, my, my favorite bits that really tell... I mean, the, the inner monologues are great, but the... The stuff that I truly enjoy are the discussions of, of conflict. So, Staros and, and uh, Nick Nolte uh, arguing, um, Wit and um, First Sergeant, you know, having their discussions. Those are that. I mean, that's what's that I'm really intrigued in. Woody Harrelson uh, when he's when he's dying. Um, that that whole exchange is really really good so those are the things i enjoyed yeah those were now that you mentioned that those do like that's great writing in those scenes 
Damn. Um, I'm ready to jump into some of the thematic Let's elements. Let's do it. That's cool. So yeah, um, my, my, I guess, summary from a thematic standpoint is that the Thin Red Line is sort of an epic meditation on the war between good and evil inside the human soul. Um, I already talked about how I was originally going to discuss or have, uh, we're going to do Apocalypse Now because it's sort of the heart of darkness Mm -hmm. in which that was based on is I think a lot of that, the the part of you that loves and the part of you that kills, um, which I think was maybe more in the redo version of, uh, of Apocalypse Now. You know, I've never seen that. Eh. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's that great. I mean, it's worth seeing once just for the history and the interesting other like stuff that's added, but I think they were right to cut out a lot of it. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> so here I'm, I wanted to first get to the uh, so Wit sees that Japanese soldier buried in soot except for a small portion of his face and there's a, some mist and smoke blowing past and then we get some voiceover are you righteous kind does your confidence lie in this are you loved by all know that I was too do you imagine your sufferings will be less because you love goodness truth Damn. Mm-hmm. Woo. Yeah. And um, I mean, this is obviously, I think, pointing out something really starkly about or stark about human conflict is, yeah, it's like, and I this is even mentioned by, um, I was thinking about this too, since I'm such a Game of Thrones <laughs> dork, that I remember even uh, Sir Jorah, and I don't even think this was in the book, but he tells uh Daenerys he's like it's it's easy to to think of your enemies as evil as sort of a warning like yeah it's it's easy to think of your enemies in this way but you can't mm-hmm. you can't hate your enemies and I think that's subjectivity especially in the context of a war film and some you know in the context of you know we'll compare it again to uh something like um what's the spielberg film i can't i don't know saving private ryan saving private ryan that's a little bit more straightforward i think about in some respects although i think it's there's at least one scene right that's it's maybe not as um hollywood as i as i'm giving it credit for in terms of oh america's good and the germans are bad the Now, like what I'm thinking of, like Saving Private Ryan, for me, what always sticks out is the, like the German soldier that they capture and then they release, and then he comes back later on only to kill one of the one of the uh, one of the guys we had been watching in the film. Um, so no, I pretty much just think of the Germans as evil in that movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is definitely a much more nuanced approach to mm-hmm. to a war film. And I think maybe that, well, I guess that's not true. I was going to say that my viewing experience, really, a lot of the, I do like a lot of war films, but it's mostly, they are mostly pretty, um, I don't know if they're pointing out the subjectivity of good and evil as much as as this does, but, you know, I'm trying to think, not Hamburger Hill, but the the Kubrick film, Full Metal Jacket, Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, um, Platoon, 
I don't know, those don't really get into, they don't really tackle things from a sort of moral, subjective Not in the way that this movie does, yeah. yeah. But I think that that quote, I mean, that scene, visually and from a writing standpoint, just wow. That was incredible. (sighs) That may have been the, uh, well, it's hard. No, I was going to say that may have been the scene, but I think maybe the scene of the film is is the closing closing monologue by uh, Sean Penn, Mm. perhaps. Mm Mm-hmm. That I already quoted, but damn, this if, I'll be damned if this was not amazingly powerful. I feel I've said this a few times, uh, but I mean, like, yeah, it's like one of my favorite scenes in in the film is just that moment right there, and just again, like the I know the thin red line, you know, it's not necessarily talking about like a fine line, but I mean, there is that you know that fine line that that exists, you know, that there are. There are two sides, you know, and there are other individuals, um, you know, it's not just, they're not just your enemy, they're, they are people, and yeah. Um, but is there a, is there an avenging power in nature? <laughs> Why does nature vie against itself? I think you should just, just quote the whole movie. <laughs> right? Uh, but I, I mean, to me, my view, I don't necessarily agree with the stark sort of binary opposition of, of good and evil. My viewpoint is that we, I mean, we are nature and the fact that we separate ourselves from nature stems from a lot of Christian theology that places us at the forefront of nature and separates us from nature, but that really takes us away from what we really are. We are part of nature. We are natural beings, just like everything else. Mm -hmm. There there isn't, there is no good and evil. Good and evil only makes sense in the context of humanity and human experience, right? Because that, that crocodile that we see at the beginning of the film is that crocodile evil because it eats, you know, a deer. We, we wouldn't necessarily judge it as evil. Now, obviously, that doesn't work in, in, in a sort of functioning society or place right. where we want to yeah. um, actually being in the world itself. But, you know, it so, sort of does have a transcendent truth to it in the sense that everything is everything. is everything. The universe is one thing, right? Mm-hmm. We're all comprised. We all make up the universe. And, I don't know, maybe the stark contrast between what's good and what's evil isn't very useful to be honest. Maybe it's more of a gradient or something. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's what the, the film is kind of speaking to and kind of discussing in that it, 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 it isn't a good guys versus bad guys story. That's not what we're, that's not what we're watching for, for three hours <laughs> uh, for Terrence Malick to say, Hey, the good guys won. There are no good guys in this story. Or bad guys, really, for that matter. Because, yeah, I mean, the... There's... I think there, there, there's so much that we're looking at that scenes and shots that don't have people in it at all. I mean, you know, you see a lot of shots of trees, animals, bats, things like that, uh, random uh, native animals that, you know, that are there and 
who spends just as much time with that and blood spattered on on blades of grass and and things like that um a dead soldier from from i guess days before um you know just kind of drowning in the you know the 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 nature the grass the trees the weeds everything that's around him and everything i think some other thematic element that i thought was kind of interesting and i formulated this i don't know how much support there is but i sort of felt like the beginning 30 to 40 minutes whenever wit is with the uh, polynesian people i thought of that as maybe maybe that represents the garden of eden yeah or par- like a sort of paradise and then the whenever he returns to the actual conflict and the later the rest of the film is a sort of after being banished from the garden of eden because even later on whenever wit tries to return to the to uh yeah he's rejected he's, he's rejected he's yeah. tasted that forbidden fruit if you will right the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil yeah maybe yeah yeah and i know as well towards the because towards the end of the film and i'm obviously later on with malik having done the film tree of life there's a giant a really big mangrove tree that's amazing it looks beautiful Mm -hmm. and we see it i think after it's roughly right around the time that wit ends up dead uh, that we see that, and I'm wondering if that is intentional um, as far oh, as that imagery goes as that's well. interesting, yeah. Let's go back and look at that. Again, um, but then, I mean, so the idea, every now that could be a little bit more in the literal, kind of like a, you know, where he was in the, the mangroves and everything as far as um, being in paradise, but they all have their own paradise, right? And then... Well, of our of our central characters that we're kind of kind of tracking in or at least in the case of um Ben Chaplin uh Bell. Bell was a private um Ben Chaplin's character. Where his is that you know, his wife. Um and then if like the, the dark waters represent uh something what 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 what's his line about the dark waters? I think like crossing the, crossing the dark. I, give me the imagery of the river Styx, like the from from Greek mythology. I think was like a dark river, okay, like a black water. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, that's kind of what that brought to mind for me. Oh shoot! Uh, just uh, just mentioned um, like Greek mythology. I love that bit where Nick Nolte's like, yeah, you know, read Homer and uh, <laughs> we read Homer at the point <laughs> yeah. in the original Greek. <laughs> uh, there, uh, I think another element to this too is well, I don't know how how this ties in. I think I mean obviously, but I don't think there's a unified theme here. But there's there's that's probably the biggest one. But there's also I mentioned this earlier a little bit of a the the dialectic of the uh, idealist in wit and the materialist mm-hmm. in in Welsh. In that, you know, and especially with that shot with the bird and they even quote, there's a quote, you know, let's see if I can find the damn thing. Um, it's like one man looks at the bird and sees nothing but pain and the 
someone else looks at it and they see something else entirely. I don't think I can find, I don't think I jotted down the actual quote though. Let me see if I can find it. Nope, I did not write next, it down. Next one we do, I'm going to have to bring in a laptop so I have, <laughs> right. I've got all my seriously stuff backed up here too. Um, but I did find too, along with that that sort of idea of the dialogue between wit and Welsh and Welsh, and that's sort of like I said the the idealist. So I mean these the idealist and materialist in the sense in the philosoph- philosophical sense so um the idealist philosophical belief is that there are there is something transcendent outside of humanity um there's a truth that we can attain or there's a there's something real beyond us that is eternal that we can perhaps have access to that gets filtered through our to to our reality right Mm -hmm. like the uh almost like the like plato's idea of the forms like there's a perfect form out there of what a dog is or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, and then contrast that with the materialist viewpoint is that there is only the universe. The universe is sort of one physical entity, and everything arises from that physical state. Mm-hmm. So there are no transcendent truths. There are. There's nothing that transcends the material world itself it's there's no world there ain't no world but this one right and it's interesting because there is a quote from jean paul sartre that almost is word for word this i'll read it to you so it goes there is no you there is no universe except the human universe the universe of human subjectivity which I thought, yeah, obviously ties well into this yeah. conversation. It's almost like he just pretty much like just uh, fit that in the screenplay. It's like he read that and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and right. That that'd make a really nice bit of dialogue. <laughs> I'll slip this in here. And it's funny that you mentioned, it's funny that you mentioned even dialogue because that's, it's sort of a philosophical Socratic dialogue, right? In mm-hmm. the sense of these conversations that they have yeah. that are illustrating these different viewpoints. Something else from a th- sort of thematic element of it was um, Sean Penn himself though, which is weird. He sort of betrays a little bit this cynicism whenever he goes and um goes to the oh, so they're, whenever they're taking the hill early on there's a kid that gets shot in the gut and he's writhing around in pain and he's screaming and sean penn goes to take him uh i guess morphine right yeah 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 i forgot all about that scene which is a pretty you know another amazing scene too because the kid's dying and he's yep. like no, he's like, Sean Penn was going to pick him up and take him back. And he's like, no, leave, leave me alone. Yep. Leave me alone. And he just like starts throwing morphine packs at him. He's like, and he's like, goodbye, <laughs> goodbye. Man. And then Sean Penn runs back. Yep. And he's having the conversation. Staros is like, oh, I saw you. I just saw what you did through the glass. That was amazing. I'm going to put this in my orders tomorrow. Yeah, to get you then, recognized, and he's like, "No, if you do that, I will resign my yep. <laughs> so fast." It's like who who the fuck thinks about property? Property? <laughs> yeah. 
that was a good exchange though. That, that I love that 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 scene too. Just yeah, basically just putting that guy out of his misery. Oh damn it! I did have that dialogue. Um, one man looks at a dying bird and thinks there's nothing but unending pain. Did that death's got the final word and it's laughing at him. Another man sees that same bird and feels the glory, feels something smiling through it. That's the that's the contrast between Wit and Sarge, which could have left been left unsaid, I think, mm-hmm. in yeah. many respects. But damn, that was it. Yeah. Dark, darkness and light, strife and love. Are they the workings of one mind, the features of the same face? Yes, they are. I would say. Yeah. No. Um. The capacity inside of us for great love, but also the capacity for great evil, for great, you know, causing great suffering. Yeah. Th- yeah, more so. I'll exactly. put it that way. Yeah. yeah, I won't. I won't say evil or good, but yeah, the capacity to to sacrifice. I mean, obviously, people are sacrificing themselves throughout this film mm-hmm. for one another, for something that transcends the material, right? Or, I mean, yeah. If if you look at it, like Sean Penn says, it's you know just property. It's all about property, but but it's not. Even though he's so cynical, and that's the irony of it, though, is he's so cynical and jaded and hollowed out by life, but he still risks it all. Yeah. In many ways. That's weird, right? Oh, my soul, let me be in you now. Look out through my eyes. Look out at the things you made, all things shining. I don't know what that means, but it sounds great. (laughs) Some just absolute, yeah. I mean, it's, there's just some absolute poetry at work here. We see the islanders in their, like at the end, we see the islanders in their canoes amongst the mangroves, and the final shot is that coconut tree sprouting on the beach, and then the native uh, Polynesian singing comes back. Mm-hmm. And thus the film ends. So, like, the question I have for you. The movie checks in just under three hours. Feel a little bit short to you at all? I mean, for me, it does. For me, I, I you know, I, I want another like 10, 15 minutes in that film. I think they could have cut out, I mean, like I said, if they cut out some of the, the scenes with the mother and the wife and even some of the, um, some of the unnecessary stuff with the uh, Polynesian like the kids at the beginning, although right. it was beautiful, like the kids swimming and stuff. Um, there was a lot of dead, dead space there. Yeah. Um, that probably could have made it a little bit tighter. Yeah. Cause I mean, we, we know, I mean, you could have a fraction of that and still know everything that you need yeah, to do about exactly. But I mean, we don't have any battle for like in the film for like well over like the first hour, right. Of the, of the movie well into like, hour 15 minutes or so before we have some fighting going on which is funny because that again like i'm thinking back to the first time i saw this film and it's like you're expecting a a war movie and you get this like what this fucking (laughs) yeah like 
bunch of nature people, documentary. Yeah, it's just a bunch of people talking, and it's a it's freaking nature. Yeah, one of my good friends is like, yeah, and they're like, movie puts me to sleep. I'm like, man, you're 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 missing out. And then we had a whole conversation about about Saving Private Ryan and, and this, and because they came out around the same time, the same year, and they were both robbed of an Oscar because of Shakespeare in Love, uh, that they're what. <laughs> <laughs> that they're universally like uh packaged. Oh my god. I didn't even realize that was the same year, but oh. Yeah. Saving uh yeah, Saving Private Ryan and um Thin Red Line both got snubbed for best picture over Shakespeare and Love. Which is sort of a f- forgettable film, right? It really like, is. Yeah, it's you know, really I, nothing I I mean there's there's some cool scenes in that film and it, it's you know beautiful to look at in, in in pieces but dude that was just like the weinstein engine hard at work that i think that got that movie the right. oscars you know just the the way that they got that movie got hyped around festival season but yeah there's just no way there's just it's like, not even close to it, yeah <laughs> like it, it's there it's funny when you go if you, if you just periodically go back and look at some of the best pictures winners and then seeing what else what was, was snubbed yeah yeah and and just like if we'd if we could go ahead and redo the 1998 academy awards <laughs> because this movie was nominated for seven and it didn't win any of them and saving private ryan won a few awards um and again they're two entirely different movies but they're both war movies and that one received a little bit more accolade uh, accolades when it in the the award but as i've gotten as i've gotten older i've gained far more of an appreciation for this film more so than saving and i love saving private ryan i don't it, it's a, it's a wonderful movie but i'm more i'm more intr- intrigued by this one because this one's more about people and that's what for me as a viewer um I find that I find that really, really fascinating, and I, I just yeah the if if I if I just want to watch a a war movie yeah you know um, sure Saving Private Ryan is fantastic but if I want to to understand more of the people that fought in the war this is this would be the film that I would I would watch over the two yeah I mean I I can definitely identify with that in that like I said I hated this movie the first time i saw it i was like what i'm expecting something gritty and action based yeah. and that was not yeah and, especially, and we spend 40 40 minutes on a on an island <laughs> and especially if you had seen save it private ryan first and you get that that wonderful oh, I like definitely because yeah. i think i saw saving private ryan in the theaters oh i i, I did as well <laughs> uh i didn't see this in the theater because of the fact that I, it was almost kind of like a boycott like no i'm not gonna like i'm gonna go save him private ryan I don't you need- are on team saving private ryan yeah i'm like and Again, perspective, uh, a lifetime uh, of growing and becoming a different person, serving in the military, you know, just those things that have that have affected me and changed who I am as a person that that this movie speaks to me in in a different way. It's it's such an emotional film that's so powerful The the dialogues and the voiceover address so yeah. emotionally i mean just it's so powerful yeah and it really i don't know i i think when i fell in love with this film i was 
having a rough go of it at the time and i think maybe that's just what that just solidified it for me it's just the beauty of some of the the dialogue and the the themes that are going on it's just incredible mm-hmm. and like i said i mean i've said this uh, maybe before in a podcast that even in this you know i, I think i recognize like what spielberg does maybe more maybe more of a challenge in a, in some ways than what Malik can do in that there's more of a like a delineated um, structure and there's like a high concept that you're going for and you execute right mm-hmm. instead of you know shooting you know thousands of hours of footage and then putting things together in the editing room and right. cutting out your lead you know yeah. what I mean like that what the what the yeah. fuck it's amazing that he's allowed to make these movies like who the who the fuck would <laughs> want to fund a project like this you know what it, I mean? it's it's amazing and the the whole it, it's it's the uh the uh the mysticism of terrence malick and you have this guy that makes these you know two very respected films from the 70s doesn't necessarily go into hiding but in the way of like film discussions kind yeah. of like when the way of hiding and his new movie he's gonna it's coming out and like 20 some odd years and everybody's throwing themselves at him. Like, I want to be in your movie. I want to be in your movie films, hundreds of hours of, of, of film cuts out his, uh, it's, I mean, watch saving private Ryan. It's like, all right. Yeah. Let's cut out Matt Damon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what the marketing of the film was like too. Cause there were expecting, you know, maybe cause the stars are like Clooney and, you know, Nolte at least. And, God, who else? I mean, Cusack. Yeah, some pretty legit Hollywood stars. It, uh, Bill Pullman, you know, was cut out. Um, it's just crazy. It When, like, oh, my God, he ha- they have this actor and this actor and this actor, and, oh, Mickey Rourke's getting a, getting a comeback? Cool, this will be awesome. And then th- this movie comes out, and you're like, oh, this isn't at all what I thought it was going to be. I'm going to pull up. I want to even pull up... Um, Sean Penn because I'm trying to think what was Penn like I guess he was a movie he was a movie star I mean he oh yeah but was he really recognized as a like a tour de force actor at this point well yeah he had done uh, Dead Man Walking which he got an Oscar or at least was nominated for yeah it was Dead Man Walking right it had him and uh, Susan Sarandon I'm on his IMDb page right now. You might have to go into like, I'm, I'm guessing that movie came out in 95, 96. 95, okay. Yeah. But that was really, um, so looking back on his page here, that was maybe the first super dramatic role where like serious acting role that he had. Well, he did a, he did a war movie with um, uh, Michael J. Fox. What, what was that movie? Um, Michael J. Fox was in a war movie? Yeah. Yeah, it was in the eighties. Uh, what the hell was that movie? I saw it when I was a kid because I'd watch anything with Michael J. Fox in it. Casualties of War. That's it. Casualties of War. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm going through. We're, we're no angels. Cool blue. State of Grace. Cruise Control. Carlito's Way. Yeah, he was pretty great. Oh, he was Kleinfeld. great. <laughs> great in Carlito's Way. And yeah, then it's like after the Thin Red Line is when he really because then it was he was in Being John Malkovich. I am Sam. Wait, who was he? Mystic in the- River, Twenty One Grams. 
But yeah, I think this was one of the early movies that solidified him as a serious working actor or mm-hmm. serious actor, not working actor. Because then he later, you know, he goes on to do Mystic River and 21 Grams and then like he started to get the really like mm-hmm. more top tier in the in the Oscar sort of realm films. Right. And then he's filming shit in uh, New Orleans uh, during, what was it, Hurricane Katrina? Any thematic elements that we didn't go over that... I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I, I think, I mean, we've we've discussed nature, but I think nature as a as a whole is you know one of the themes in the in this film. So I think, but we've we've kind of covered nature several times over. Yeah. But that's a very distinct theme of the movie. I mean, I think I would extend that to this, like this dynamism between these two sides, or this gradient of destruction and creation mm-hmm. maybe that's that's really perhaps the best way to articulate it is the tension between the destructive and creative force of nature yeah and it but it all is one thing like nature is we are nature nature is us we have the cr- ability to create we have the ability to just to destroy but no matter what it continues on there's a cycle that will keep on continuously creation destruction creation destruction mm. there's just a i think there's there's one quote that i didn't go over earlier but i i, I want to close on uh, a little monologue from wit that's actually at the beginning of the film uh, whenever he's reminiscing about his mother dying i remember my mother when she was dying looked all shrunk up and gray i asked her if she was afraid she just shook her head i was afraid to touch the death i seen in her i couldn't find nothing beautiful or uplifting about her going back to God. I heard people talk about immortality, but I ain't seen it. I wonder how it'd be like when I died. What it'd be like to know this breath now was the last one you were ever going to draw. I just hope I can meet it the same way she did, with the same calm. Because that's where it's hidden, the immortality I hadn't seen. <laughs>